0: I'd like to have you turn to John chapter 20 with me this morning, and we will study the second half of this chapter as we bring our series of studies on the miracles of Jesus to a close uh, this Sunday by taking a second week to discuss the resurrection. As I mentioned last week, the historical objective fact of the resurrection is the bedrock of our faith. Uh, This is why I am a believer in Jesus Christ, not just because of the miracles which he did, which no one else could do, but because of the fact that his resurrection is a historically verifiable fact. It actually happened, and 500 people were eyewitnesses of that fact, and that gives us a solid basis on which to build our life of faith. We're not just taking some sort of irrational leap into the uh, subjective we are grounding our walk with God, our belief and trust in Jesus Christ, on the the bedrock of the fact of his resurrection. What we want to look at today is the uh, appearance of the risen Lord to his disciples. Last week, we looked at his appearance to Mary Magdalene, who uh, was so deeply grieved by the loss of the Lord, and because of of her love for Jesus and his desire to comfort her in her grief. He appeared, first of all, to her. But then he appeared, as we will see in this episode, to his disciples as well. Let's begin in verse 19. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Let's just stop right there get the setting for this appearance. This was on the first day of the week, the same day in which Jesus had appeared to Mary Magdalene. So this would be the Sunday following the resurrection. That evening, the disciples were gathered together, probably in the same room where they had shared the Last Supper together with the Lord just on the previous Thursday evening, just several nights before. And here is the first opportunity they've had to be together since the crucifixion. The crucifixion took place on Friday They scattered, did not have an opportunity to be together on Saturday because of the Sabbath. And so here on Sunday evening for the first time since their Lord was put to death on the cross, they are gathered together again. And we're told that the doors were bolted. Notice this doors plural. Probably the door to the house in which they were as well as the door to the room in which they were staying. I picture them with... Dressers and chairs piled up against the uh, uh, doorknob because they were afraid of the Jews. Now, their fear is is understandable. Jesus had just two days before been put together on a, or had been put to death on a charge of high treason, which was the worst uh, offense under Roman authority that you could be accused of. It was a trumped up charge, but nevertheless, he had gone to the cross as a, a convicted criminal, a traitor. And, naturally, their suspicions were that they might well be next. I expect if we were student leaders in the Chinese rebellion and we were subordinates of those who had been visible and we'd seen them hung in the public squares, we would naturally think the authorities were going to be quickly looking for us. And this is the reason for uh, the security. And I expect that the ten, we'll find later that Thomas was not here, but I expect that the ten were gathered together to try to figure out what in the world are we going to do now do we take on new identities uh who can shoot us a picture for a new driver's license how do we protect ourselves from what is almost certain arrest and possible death and we're told that in these circumstances with the doors securely bolted locked barred this is what happened middle of verse 19 jesus came and stood in their midst jesus came and stood in their midst. Suddenly, without any sort of warning, Jesus was there, right in the midst of them. They were probably gathered around the same horseshoe-shaped table at which they'd taken the Last Supper, and here, right in the middle of this horseshoe, suddenly was Jesus Christ. Now, naturally, their first question is, where in the world did he come from? Uh, The doors to the house were bolted, the doors to the room were bolted. And right away that we see that one of the truths or the realities about jesus and his resurrected body which will one day also be true of us is that it's not restricted by space and time our bodies these days are subject to the restrictions of the dimensions of space and time that is what makes us late for work now just think of how exciting it would be to have a body that was not subject to any of those restrictions Uh, if Uh, You wouldn't have to worry about whether Broadway was going to get paved in time for the Broncos home opener. You could just be there, right there in your season ticket seats. Uh, If you have someone in another state that you miss and you'd love to see and to chat with, you could simply be there. And that's uh, part of our future, when Jesus returns and grants to us the same resurrection body. So because of the power that he had, capacity, in his resurrection body, he was simply able, by an act of his will, to appear there with the disciples. And the first thing that Jesus said to them, into verse 19, is, Peace be with you. Now, I think the reason he had to say this is they were freaked out at this point. They'd just seen a grown man suddenly appear, materialize, out of nowhere, right in the middle of the room, And they were probably scrambling for cover. They thought possibly it was a ghost of some kind or the spirit of Jesus come to suddenly reappear. And they were frightened out of their wits, panic-stricken. So the first thing that Jesus has to do is, is to calm them down. He says, it's okay, boys. It's just me. Settle down. Let me calm your shattered nerves. It's me. And then in verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side Uh, after he had calmed them down got them back to their positions there around the table pulled them out from under the couches and from behind the easy chairs and so forth and got them calmed down the next thing he does is extend to them his hands and he shows them the uh, mark in his wrist where the roman soldiers had nailed his wrists to the cross to support his body on the cross the wrist was considered part of the hand at this time and Nails weren't actually driven through the palm of the hand. There's not enough bone in there to support the weight of a body. So they were driven through the, the wrists where there was enough bone to pin the wrist to the cross so it would support the weight of a body. And so he extended to them uh, his hands, and they could see the scars, the, the hole in his wrist where the nails had been driven. And then Jesus opened his robe so that they could see the wound in his side where the spear of the Roman soldier had, had pierced his side, and where the blood and water had come pouring out of the wound. As you remember, that's how the Roman soldier knew that Jesus was dead, didn't have to break his legs. Uh, Basically, the way people died in crucifixion was through asphyxiation. They simply became too tired to breathe. The way in which they would breathe with their arms extended is they would have to lift their bodies up in order to allow air to come into the lungs. And then they would sag back down, lift themselves up with their heels on the little stanchion that they were given until eventually they became too weakened to do that if a convicted criminal hung on too long roman soldier would simply take a mallet break his shin bone break his legs he no longer could raise himself up to breathe and he would simply die but one of the prophecies in the old testament was that not a bone of his would be broken and john makes a big point of that in chapter 19 that when the roman soldier came it looked as if jesus was dead In order to test it, he took his spear and ran it through the side of his body. And when blood and water came out of the wound, the Roman soldier knew that Jesus was in fact dead. And John says, we saw that. There were eyewitnesses that saw that blood and water came out of that wound, that he was in fact dead. He hadn't simply lapsed into a coma, fallen into unconsciousness, lapsed into some sort of swoon from which he revived in the cool air of the tomb. He was stone cold dead. It's an interesting little medical possibility uh, that's hidden in the fact that out of his side came blood and water. I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm relying on testimony of others who are, but I've read literature from medical doctors that indicate that when a heart ruptures, the blood that's in the heart spills into the sac, the pericardial sac that surrounds the heart. And in this pericardial sac, there's a watery-type serum. And the blood from the ruptured heart will mingle with this watery serum in the sack that's around the heart. And if the spear of the Roman soldier had pierced that pericardium, that sac, then what would have come out of the wound of Jesus was the blood which had spilled into that sack from the ruptured heart and the watery serum. That would be the blood and water. The uh, uh, the rather striking thing is that... It, in that is that it does suggest that Jesus, in fact, died literally of a, of a broken heart. Uh, the anguish of being on the cross and bearing our sin uh, so agonized him, the pain of being separated from his father literally ruptured his heart. And therefore, the blood and the serum flowed from his wound when the soldier pierced it. But Jesus showed them that wound, the gaping wound in his side, the scar where the, where the spear had pierced and this was overwhelming convincing evidence to the disciples that this was jesus and that he was physically alive they could place their their fingers into the wound they could feel the side where the spirit had gone Uh, this was no phantasm it was no ghost it was no spirit this was a real live human being in a real live human body they'd never seen these sorts of wounds on a live person before they'd seen them on dead people before but never on somebody who was alive. And this eliminated their fears, their conviction that Jesus was dead. Therefore, verse 20, notice not before they had seen his hands and his side, but when they had seen his hands and his side, examined the physical evidence for themselves. Therefore, the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. I can imagine that rejoiced is an understatement at this point. We saw some of what must have been Uh, Mary's incredible relief and joy and excitement at discovering that her Lord had been returned to her alive. And I'm sure that the same uh, experience of transcendent joy would would have seized these disciples at this point. The dream wasn't over. It had simply begun. Then after Jesus allows the celebration to go on for a time, he says in verse 21, he said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. I believe what Jesus does in verses 21 through 23 is describe for us the resources that are ours because of his resurrection. Uh, This is the legacy that he has passed on to his disciples before us and to us in their wake. This is the legacy of his resurrection. These are the, the resources that he has given to us because of his resurrection the first thing he says to the disciples is peace because of my resurrection it is possible for you to be at peace all of us long for that we envy people who seem to have an inner sense of security and and calm who seem to be at peace with themselves and and not rattled and unruffled but seem to maintain uh, equilibrium and be comfortable with themselves and have a quiet sense of of assurance and self-acceptance and Jesus says, this is my first gift to you, that when I am in your midst, if you recognize that I am in your midst, this is the part of your heritage, to be, to be at peace. Even when the world around you is harried and hurried and restless, you've got a basis for peace, because you know that my, my presence is what stabilizes you. You know that I'm here, and I'll see you through. I'll be what you need. Uh, the world—the only way the world knows to find peace is uh, through circumstances. Uh, cabin in the mountains, although I'm not sure this summer that would produce peace necessarily, but the chance to get away from it all, put a pool in the backyard, and have a chance to relax after work. That's the only way the world knows how to find peace. But Jesus says, because of my resurrection, my presence can be your source of peace, no matter how unsettling the circumstances around you are. The second thing that Jesus says to them is that as the Father has sent me, so I send you. In other words, part of the legacy is not only a sense of peace and rest that we, we know from the presence of the risen Lord, but secondly, Jesus has given us a responsibility. He's given us a task to do. You realize that when Jesus came back from the dead, the disciples might naturally have assumed that they would be able to spend another 40 or 50 or 60 years with the Lord. In his incarnation, he was a young man. It was just in his early 30s. And it probably was something of a surprise to them when they discovered that Jesus, in a matter of weeks, was going to return to the presence of his Father. And they would not see him again physically until he he returned. And what Jesus is instructing them here is that the plan that the Father now has is not for me to do the work of the Father, but now for you to do it. Just as the Father commissioned me and sent me to do his work, so now I am commissioning you, I am sending you to do my work, to carry on the work that I have begun. You will be the ones that will finish the work which I have begun now how did the father send jesus well i think the key word is he sent him incarnate that's how the father sent jesus to us jesus from eternity past was god he was the second member of the trinity as theologians put it he was eternally generated the eternally generated son he always was from eternity past The son of god the time came when the father wanted to send him to earth he sent him incarnate in human flesh in an ordinary unspectacular human body he sent the second member of the trinity incarnate in human flesh that that a hurting world might see the character and the life and the love of the father himself it had to be enfleshed in someone incarnate in a human body that's how the father sent jesus incarnate and jesus says that's how i am going to send you i'm going to send you into a hurting world to be the incarnation of my life in other words your task as my followers as my disciples is to manifest my life and my character in the midst of your circumstances uh, so that people will see not you not your natural personality and wit and ambition and drive, but what they will see is my life and my character quietly manifest, made visible, demonstrated in your circumstances. So that's the responsibility that we've been given, is to be the incarnation of Jesus Christ to our families, to our children, to our spouses, to be the incarnation of Jesus to the neighbors around us, To be the incarnation of Jesus to the people who work for us. That they might see what it would be like to work for Jesus. Uh, To be the incarnation of Jesus to our employers. To see what it would be like if Jesus were to work in that shop or in that office or in that factory. That's a responsibility that we've been given. I think the apostles got this picture quite early. If you want to flip over just one page to Acts chapter 1... You'll see one of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible. There's a little word in Acts 1.1 I want you to see that you can kind of skip right over if you're not careful. The book of Acts is Luke's uh, second volume. The first, of course, was the Gospel of Luke, which described the incarnation, ministry, death, and resurrection of Christ. And notice how he introduces the Acts of the Apostles, the book which focuses on the activity of the Apostles. The first account, that is the Gospel of Luke, I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the Gospel of Luke is complete, a story as it gives us of the earthly life of Jesus, was simply a record, Luke says, of what Jesus began to do and teach. Volume 2, the Acts of the Apostles, is the record of what Jesus continued to do and teach incarnate in his apostles, manifesting through them the same life and character that he had demonstrated on earth 2,000 years ago, just years before. It was his life, his work, through them. If you go on later in the book of Acts, uh, you'll find that the believers, the followers of Jesus, got the name Christian in the city of Antioch. And the word Christian literally means a little Christ, a smaller version of Jesus Christ. And they got this name because people around them began to realize that there were living among them people who looked like quite ordinary human beings, but who walked like Jesus walked, who talked like Jesus talked who responded with the same love and kindness and forgiveness and tolerance and patience that Jesus himself had demonstrated. And so they began to recognize that these people were little Christs. They were smaller versions of the real thing because Jesus was indwelling them and manifesting, demonstrating his life out through them. So that's the responsibility Jesus says you have. Uh, The first resource I give you is my peace. The second... Word to you is responsibility to incarnate my life, to demonstrate it in your circumstances. Back in John 20, he continues in verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. I think naturally the question that would come to the disciples' minds... It was the same question that comes to ours is I would love to be the incarnation of Jesus. I would love for people in my home, my neighborhood, uh, my office to look at me, to be with me, and to feel like they've been with Jesus. I would love to have that be true of me, but I don't have the goods to do that. I don't have the capacity to do that. I don't have the self-control and the strength and the patience and the intelligence to do that. And that was the same question going through the minds of the disciples so jesus says after he gives them the commission to incarnate his life he says i'm going to give you the resource to do it in the person of the holy spirit and he gives them the gift of the holy spirit so that by means of the power and presence of the holy spirit depending upon his power at work in them the life of jesus might be released to them and others would see They would no longer be depending upon their own best efforts to act like Jesus and behave like Jesus. They would now be counting upon the power of a third party, the Holy Spirit who would take up residence in them and live out his life in them. Then in verse 23, oh, one other comment on verse 22. It has to do with the word breathed there. This is the same word that's used in the uh, greek translation of the old testament in genesis 2 7 where we're told that god breathed into adam's nostrils and he became a living being and john i think quite intentionally uses the same word here he's saying that just as god breathed into adam and he became physically alive so jesus breathed into his disciples and they became spiritually alive through the gift of the holy spirit One uh, problem that needs some attention is to reconcile this account of the giving of the Holy Spirit with what we find on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Are there two givings of the Spirit? Is this an anticipation of the one giving of the Spirit on Pentecost? The way I understand that uh, is that in this upper room on this evening, we had gathered just the ten. Uh, Judas, of course, was gone. Thomas was not present, as we'll see in a moment. The remaining ten were given the gift of the Holy Spirit, in the upper room in order to provide spirit-led direction and guidance for the church in the days between the resurrection and the ascension. Then on the day of Pentecost, all 120 of the believers in the church received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So there were, in fact, two givings of the Spirit. This anointing of the apostles to provide interim leadership and then the full outpouring of the Spirit on the whole body of Jesus' disciples on the day of Pentecost. So he tells them, in this task of incarnating my life, you're going to have supernatural help. It'll be up to someone else. All you need to do is to place your faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he will release in you the life of Jesus. I had a a simple little illustration of this in Suriname. when We were down there several years ago. There uh, is a generator that uh, operates every night from about 7, about sundown until about 10 o'clock that night. And it provides electrical power to the entire village back there in the bush. It's really sort of a weird thing. You walk through the jungles of South America and you hear these little cassette players playing, if you're ready for this, country western music in the jungles of South I never thought I'd see, hear that. But they can plug their little cassette recorders in and they can play uh, Boz Skaggs or Willie Nelson or whoever they happen to have. And there would be little sewing machines that people would have, and they would be able to run these sewing machines and sew at night. there in the jungles of South America because there was a, a power source available that had sufficient power for every demand that might be made in the village. And all the villagers had to do to tap into this power was simply to, to plug into the source. And that's what faith is like for us. It's a way of tapping into the source. The power is being supplied By someone else our task is simply to actively trust that power uh, to tap into that source of power through our faith in the lord and that's what jesus is saying to the disciples you can be the incarnation of my life not because you have what it takes but because the holy spirit will be indwelling you then in verse 23 he Gives them a focus for this, this task, this ministry that they are to have to others by, by means of the Spirit. And that's to deal with the problem of sin and guilt. Verse 23, he says, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. At first glance, it appears as if Jesus is giving to the disciples the power or the authority to themselves forgive sin or to withhold forgiveness from sin. And this verse has been commonly, by certain branches of the church, misunderstood in just that way, as if Jesus was somehow delegating to us the actual authority or power to forgive sins. When the scriptures are quite clear everywhere else that this is authority that God alone possesses. He is the only one who can forgive sins. When the Pharisees complained that Jesus was forgiving the sins of the paralytic, they said, and rightly so, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus agreed with them. You guys are exactly right. He says God is the only one that has that authority. So what is Jesus saying here? If you have a new American standard, you'll have the answer right there in the translation that's, Obscured in the NIV, if you have an NIV translation, I would encourage you to change it at this point to conform to the New American Standard. Listen carefully to the way the New American Standard reads; it's quite literal and faithful to the Greek. If you forgive, that's in the present. If you forgive now, the sins of any, their sins, what, have been forgiven them. You see that we forgive in the present, but when we do that. Jesus says, their sins not will be forgiven or are forgiven at that point, but their sins already have in the past been forgiven, obviously, by God. If you retain in the present, you tell someone their sins are retained, their sins have already been retained by God. So, what Jesus is imparting to us here is not the power or the authority to actually forgive sins, but to simply declare to people that their sins already have been forgiven, or that their sins have already been retained by God. That's our authority, to declare forgiveness, to proclaim forgiveness. That's the authority we've been given, not to grant it, but to declare that God has already done that. Now, what Jesus is putting his finger on here is that one of the universal problems that all of us struggle with is the problem of guilt. That there is an awareness, if we're honest with ourselves, that we are sinners. Uh, We do things. We have done things. We will do things this week that we are rightly ashamed of, that we are not proud of, that we would just assume we hadn't done, that we would just assume we wouldn't do again, that we would just assume nobody find out about. And that creates and rightly so, a sense of guilt. And we have to deal with that sense of guilt, that sense of dis-ease that we have done something wrong. Now, there are a number of ways the flesh has of trying to cope with this sense of guilt. Uh, One that psychologists run across all the time is denial. We may be involved in some behavior that's very hurtful to ourselves, hurtful to others, but the pain of having to admit that is too great. And so we simply deny that we're, there's any problem at all. Or we may lower our standards so we don't feel quite so badly when we fail. Or typically, we may justify our actions. We may try to deal with guilt by pretending that there is no guilt, by justifying what we've done. When we know good and well in our heart of hearts that we have hurt people that, that did not deserve to be treated as we have treated them. And Jesus says there's a better way, that there is forgiveness available to you a whole and complete sense of acceptance and forgiveness and affirmation, just as you are, without changing a single thing. This is the most precious gift you can give to another individual, is the sense that you love them no matter what they do, no matter what they're like. It's the most precious gift you can give to your children. And Jesus is saying to us, we have that sort of love from our Father, and that's how you deal with the problem of guilt simply acknowledge the failure and then lay hold of that forgiveness again and again and again, if necessary. Now, our problem is that instinctively we feel that we must, in order to be accepted by God, we must uh, sort of clean up our act and then present the life which is at least sort of shaped up for Him. And then He may like us. He may tolerate us. He may put up with us. Had some... uh, used to live next door to some people who had a lot of uh, refurbishing they wanted to do in their house. They wanted to re-carpet, wanted to repaint the interior, new drapes. Put it off, put it off, put it off, until, if you're ready for this, they wanted to move. And then in a flurry, they did all of this refurbishing, not so that they could enjoy it, but so that someone else who might want to take up residence in that house might find it acceptable enough to buy it from them take it off their hands and it occurred to me how instinctively we treat god in the same way Uh, we want him to like us we want him to be happy with us but we feel that we've got to do some interior redecorating before he will find our place of residence acceptable and jesus says no that's not the way it works i want to i want to take over this homestead as broken down and as messy and grimy and and dirty and unlivable as it is, because I love you just the way you are. And I'm going to come in and help you. And we say to him, well, what about this mess over here? Don't I need to clean this up before you, you really find me acceptable? And he says, well, you know, that mess, that is a problem, as a matter of fact. And we've got to get around to dealing with that. You allow me in. I love you just like you are. And in my timing, we'll start to clean up that mess. And we'll make this place more livable. But you let me do that for you. Now that's the offer that Jesus is giving to us here. And He says this is the message that we have to give to hurting people around us. That there is a God out there who is available to start with you right where you're at with all the garbage you may have accumulated over the years, love you and accept you just like you are, and come in and help you to put things right. Jesus also says we have the authority to tell the people, to tell people that their sins have been retained. In other words, we have the authority to quietly and gently tell people that if they do not come to the living water that Jesus provides, there is no other place to go. That there is no forgiveness in anyone else. There's no way to deal with the deep issues of life apart from the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Christians are often accused of being narrow in this respect. And my response always to people who accuse me of that is to gently remind them, point out to them that the reason i believe this is because my lord told me that that's the case i have no choice in the matter my lord and master is the one who said no one comes to the father but by me and so i'll gently point out to them that their real problem is not with me but it's with jesus now you'll find very few people want to take him on very few people are eager to be critical and accuse him of being narrow And that generally will tend to dry up that discussion at that point. But that's the authority that we have to tell people there is life no other place in the world. This is the only place you can find it. And if you don't turn to this source, there's no forgiveness. There's no life anywhere else. Now let's move on to the Thomas account, which we'll deal with uh, quickly. Verse 24, Thomas, one of the twelve called didymus both those names thomas and didymus mean twin thomas is the aramaic form of the word twin didymus the greek form so thomas evidently had a twin brother of whom we know nothing but thomas one of the twelve called didymus was not with them when jesus came that he he was not present on that sunday evening meeting that they had and there's a lesson in that by the way about missing the sunday evening service (laughs) Let this, let this be a lesson to you on September 10, which you just might miss. Okay. Verse 25, the other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. Notice they were saying. Notice the progressive idea implied in that. All during this week, they were telling Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Thomas, we've seen him. But he said to them, unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. The last phrase there includes a double negative in Greek. I most certainly, under no circumstances, will believe unless I have the empirical data myself. We're not told why Thomas didn't make this first meeting. My guess is is he was too depressed uh, to bother. Thomas, by nature, was a pessimist. He was courageous but he was a pessimist you remember in john 11 when jesus was determined to go and minister to the family of lazarus all the disciples said no lord don't go it's too risky thomas said ah let's go and we'll all die together why not (laughs) so he was courageous but he always saw the worst and so he evidently had just written the whole thing off as a lost cause and in his depression had simply stayed away from this meeting what's the what's the use what's the point I think there's a lesson in that, that what we are inclined to do when we're in the position that Thomas was in, when we're defeated and discouraged, it's right at that point that we tend to withdraw from fellowship with other disciples. But it's right at that point that we, that we need them the most. It can be almost painful at times to find out months later that someone, someone you love and care for, has been struggling with something, but, but, but they never acknowledge that. They never gave you the, the privilege of coming alongside and helping but Thomas is determined not to believe until he sees it for himself. And so, verse 26, after eight days, by Jewish reckoning, that would be the following Sunday night. After eight days again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut again, notice, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. I think the reason Jesus says this again is that this shook them up just like it did the first time i don't care how many times this happens it's probably be real difficult to get used to i expect the disciples finally said to the lord look you're going to have to stop doing this or we're all going to die of a coronary and you'll have no one left to do your work he said so he said peace be with you calmed them down then verse 27 he turned to thomas directly to him and notice how close what jesus says is to what thomas had been saying all week long thomas realizes the lord spoke that here's someone who heard me say this here's someone who was present all during this week not visible but present he says to thomas reach here your finger and see my hands reach here your hand and put it into my side and be not unbelieving but believing thomas his last vestige of doubt, removed by the overwhelming evidence before his very eyes, answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Recognized that Jesus was his Lord and Master. His life was no longer his own, but belonged to Jesus. And that Jesus was his God. This is one of the clear statements in the New Testament, that Jesus was God in human flesh and nothing less. I've pointed this out to some of my Jehovah's Witness friends, and their response has been, well, this is Thomas speaking five minutes ago. He didn't even think Jesus was alive. Now you're going to trust him when he says he's Lord and God. And I say, well, I can see your point, but then what troubles me, if that's the case, is what Jesus says to him in verse 29. This would have been a perfect occasion for Jesus to say, well, Thomas, I appreciate the thought. It's a nice gesture on your part, but I'm not really God. You're going to have to get that straight before we go any further. But Jesus instead says to Thomas, you're blessed because you've seen and believed. Because you have seen me, verse 29, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. So Thomas is commended for seeing and believing. But then Jesus' last words in this passage are, blessed are those who have not seen and and yet believe well who is he thinking of when he says that well he's thinking about you and he's thinking about me we are those who have not seen with our own eyes the resurrection of christ and yet we believe and jesus says we're blessed if that's the case uh blessed is one of those bible words that you have to decode kind of word that only christians use but the word blessed just means happy or fortunate It's the Greek word makarios there is off the island of Greece, off the coast of Greece, a little island called the Isle of Makarios, the Isle of Blessedness or the Isle of Happiness. Greeks gave it that name because they felt that that island was so rich and fertile and abundant that everything you could possibly need to be happy could be found there. And I think what Jesus is telling us is that here is the place where life can be supplied, is through faith in Jesus Christ. Here is the place where we can go and find everything that we need to satisfy the deepest hunger and longings of our hearts. We have a few minutes left. We want to sing some worship to the Father and to the to Jesus who came back from the dead for our sake, and then we'll take communion together in which we will remember together uh, his death and resurrection. So let's pray and then go to a time of worship of our risen Lord. Lord, we thank you this morning that we do serve a risen Savior, that he is someone who is alive and available to impart to us his life, forgiveness, and strength. We praise you this morning for that great truth. Amen.